Welcome to the FEG Insight Bridge. This is Greg Dowling, Head of Research and CIO at FEG. This show spans global markets and institutional investments through conversations with some of the world's leading investment, economic, and philanthropic minds to provide insight on how institutional investors can survive and even thrive in the world of markets and finance. Today on the Insight Bridge, we are thrilled to have investor and best-selling author, J.D. Vance. His New York Times best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy, explores social and economical challenges in small-town America from his family's very own viewpoint. And if that wasn't enough, this fall, Hillbilly Elegy becomes a movie on Netflix. It was directed by Ron Howard and features an incredible lineup of A-list actors. Outside of inspiring a movie, J.D. is spending his time on his other passion, investing. He is a founding partner of a venture capital firm focused on backing great ideas and great entrepreneurs in less obvious locales, like flyover country. Before we start, a quick geography lesson for our listeners. FEG is in Cincinnati, Ohio. It is in the very southwestern corner of the state. Part of the broader metropolitan area includes Kentucky, where J.D.'s extended family is from, and Middletown, Ohio, where J.D. grew up. All right, big FEG welcome to J.D. Vance. Thanks for joining us. I know you are got to be extremely busy right now. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun to talk. And yeah, I was at the FEG conference a few years ago, so it's always weird how, how things adjust in times of, of the coronavirus, but glad to be able to talk to folks again. So one of my, my favorite parts of your book, and it's in the introduction, it says, at the time, I am 31 years old, I've accomplished nothing, but I'm writing a book. So what made you think about writing a book? And then maybe more importantly, how the heck did you get it published? The answer to both of those questions is related. So it was really a law school professor of mine who encouraged me to think about taking you know, what was uh, at the time a law school essay about upward mobility and economic opportunity and sort of fuse it with my own personal experiences and, and turn it into a book. And the, the name of the professor is Amy Chua, who some of you folks may know as Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother author. And she's had a couple of other books that have been successful too. And so, you know, when a person like that has had some success in the publishing industry, tells you that you should write a book, then you start to ask yourself if maybe she knows what she's talking about. And so that was really the first kick that got me on the path of thinking about writing a book. And you know, really what happened is over time, the book just got more and more personal. You know, it, as I said, it started as this law school essay about upward mobility. And every draft that I turned in, whether it was to my wife or to Amy or to the person you know, at the publisher who was reading the book, just said, you know, this is really interesting, but what would make it a little bit more alive for the readers is for you to add a little bit more personal color because, you know, you've got some good family stories and these stories are related to the source material. And so it just became more and more personal over time. And you know, the, the only reason I think I could have gotten it published was because Amy believed in the project and made the right introductions in the, in the publishing industry. As I said in the book, you know, one of the lessons I learned in law school is that the professional world is, is very often oriented around who you know. And if you know the right people, things tend to fall in place, or at least you get the opportunity for things to fall in place. And you know, she made an introduction to this woman named Tina Bennett, who's become a good friend and agreed to become my book agent. And then once Tina was on board, it was actually pretty easy to get a book deal. You know, we had a number of interesting publishers. And, you know, one thing led to another. We had a book deal and then I had to write the book and here we are. Was it hard to be that personal and and talk about some of these family issues? 
Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. It, it was definitely uncomfortable and I resisted it a lot. And I think you know, even when the book was coming out, I tried to have this, this sort of mental and psychological separation from the fact that there were all these personal stories that people were going to be you know, reading and discussing and, and understanding. And, you know, there, there were these weird coping mechanisms I realized that I developed. You know, one, I just persuaded myself that no one would actually read it. So it didn't matter that it was so personal because no one was actually listening. You know, if you tell a story, if you shout into the ether and nobody listens, then have you actually said anything? And of course, you know, the publisher and anybody who was involved in the book didn't like to hear that because of course they wanted a lot of people to read the book. And I also just had this ability to you know, separate myself from the book project. So, you know, one of the early things you have to do is you know, get people to endorse your book, especially if you're a new author, you have these blurbs on the back, they're about a paragraph long. And they at least give some credibility. They lend some credence to the idea that you've written this book and that other people who are interesting find it interesting. And the first person I asked for a blurb is this guy, Peter Thiel, who I was working for at the time. And he was an investor in Silicon Valley and remains sort of involved in a lot of the projects that I'm working on. I remember sending it to him and, and actually having this weird kind of stop moment where I couldn't quite hit send because I thought to myself, oh my God, you know, Peter's going to read all these stories. I can't possibly send it to him. And my wife, uh, who was with me at the time, said, you know, he's not the only person who's going to be reading it. So you better get used to the fact that this is going to happen. <laughs> and so, you know, I hit send and tried not to think about it again. And he gave me a nice blurb. And I think that's sort of how a lot of it has happened is that you try to sort of forget for a while that, you know, a lot of the people you meet know these intimate family stories. And of course, it comes up in conversation. And when it does, that's fine. But it's definitely a weird and, and sort of out-of-body experience that, that you have, I think, when you publish a book like this. So we just finished election season, and it felt like your book really took off last election season as people were trying to understand the Trump voter do you think that was a fair characterization of your book? And how is that right? How is that wrong? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair and unfair. And in, in important ways, of course, the book isn't especially political. I don't think I mentioned Donald Trump or, or Hillary Clinton in the book at all. I uh, didn't sort of mean it to be an especially political book. Obviously, it touches on political topics because real life touches on political topics. But that wasn't anywhere close to the focus. I, I think I understand why a lot of people grafted onto it when they were asking questions about the election and the electorate and you know, who are these people who are voting for Donald Trump. And you know, this would, was at least a, a personal insight into a family and a community and a group of people who did go disproportionately for Donald Trump in 2016. You know, I, I understood why people were doing that. But I, I always try to remind people that you know a lot of the problems that I wrote about in the book, they predate the 2016 election. They certainly will be with us well after the 2016 or the 2020 election. And, and, and my hope is that you, know, you sort of read the book and understand and have a little bit of empathy for the characters and the very real people who make up my own family story and my own family background. I hope that empathy doesn't just last a single election cycle or that interest lasts a single election cycle because, you know, of course, these are real people and we all share a country together. And it would be nice if the interest wasn't just about you know, oh my God, why did these people vote for Donald Trump, but was more understanding and, and more, I think, appreciative of the very long-term challenges that a lot of people in the community that I come from face. What do you think, and you've been involved with a lot of different charities, and I know one of them is Ohio Renewal Project. What do you think are potential solutions? How do we help these people that may not get as much attention as other groups, but certainly feel left out? Yeah, it's very tough. And I don't think that there is any sort of single solution. I tend to think about it as a toggle between things getting worse and things getting better. And as much as we can toggle in the direction of things getting better, that's important. 
I do think that one of the things we've appreciated from a sort of socioeconomic perspective is that what happened in the American sort of economy and the way that that filtered down to American culture from the early 1990s through the financial crisis was a pretty jarring shock to a lot of people in, in a lot of communities. You know, we sort of had this conceit, I think, that we could sort of have our industrial base, have our manufacturing base primarily located overseas, that American consumers would benefit from the cheap products, and that American workers would sort of adjust and go into new jobs of the 21st century instead of focusing on the old jobs of the 20th century. And I think that story isn't totally wrong, but a lot matters in how quickly that process evolves. And in other words, it's one thing to have a community adjust to a new economic reality over two or three generations. It's another thing to have that community adjust to a new economic reality over like 20 years. And, you know, this economist, David Autor, has this really interesting paper about the China shock, where basically, you know, his, his argument is that from 1999 to 2007, so we're talking about a span of, of not even a decade, America lost about 7 million manufacturing jobs, primarily uh, due to some of our sort of you know, relationships with China. Now, that's obviously a sort of complicated argument, and there are a lot of things that go into whether that was good or bad. I tend to think that it was on net bad, but I can understand why people would agree, disagree. But even if you think that was ultimately a worthwhile exchange, it's really hard to find 7 million new jobs for people in the course of a decade. And you occasionally hear people mainly sarcastically say, well, folks just have to learn how to code. Well, even if that's true, and I think that's a little uh, simplistic or obvious reasons, but even if that's true, you can't just take 7 million people and have them become computer programmers overnight, right? These sort of shifts take time. And I guess my biggest takeaway for solutions is that we have to sort of figure out how to preserve enough of an industrial base so that communities can thrive and people can actually work in meaningful high-wage jobs. I think without that, then you're just necessarily going to have a lot of economic disruption. You're going to have a lot of social disruption that comes along with that. Another solution and, and something I've been talking about for four years, and unfortunately, I, I just don't think you know, it, it sort of got worse from 2000. You know, if you look at the data, it probably got worse from 2010 all the way through the present time. And maybe it's leveled off a little bit, but it's certainly not getting better. Is We've really got to figure out this opioid problem. Again, I say that in slightly depressing tone because in four years, again, I don't think we've made a ton of progress. In 10 years, we haven't made a ton of progress. But if you have higher rates of addiction, which you do have in my community, for sort of defining Appalachian Americans, people who live or at least connected culturally to that broad region of the country that you know, we call the Appalachian Mountains, you actually have seen in that community for 50, 60 years, elevated rates of addiction. The problem is in the 1950s, when my grandfather was having problems with substance abuse, that was alcohol. Right? And you could be a pretty functioning person if your drug of choice was alcohol. You could go to work. Some people obviously struggled with it in much more extreme ways. You know, but there were a lot of functioning people who had substance abuse problems in the 1950s because the underlying substance wasn't as debilitating as heroin and fentanyl. And when you replace, you take that same prevalence of addiction and you replace the drug with fentanyl, then you've got what you have now, which is you know, 70, 80,000 people dying a year and a lot of communities struggling a lot of children who are homeless, a lot of grandparents who are picking up the slack. I think sort of figuring out that issue, preventing the flow of fentanyl into communities, 
getting people better treatment is a critical piece of the equation. But you know, again, we could talk about that for three hours, but I think just making little marginal improvements in people's lives is probably the best that we can hope for. I, I take it. As I mentioned, kind of pre-call, I didn't grow up in Cincinnati, but I've been here a long time. Moved around a little bit, but probably most of my time was in Cleveland, Ohio, and also a very industrial town. And I remember as a young kid driving with my grandpa, and he was a steel worker, a tool and die maker, and he'd always point to the building that he worked. And he was retired, and he'd always, with pride, say, Greg, that's the building I worked. And every day, he would say the same thing if we were in the car. And then one time he said, my building's not there anymore. They shipped it to China. And so it was a real loss. The other thing that struck me in your book as being both a pro and con to really the Scotch-Irish ancestry Appalachia is how fiercely loyal they are and the family structure that's important to them. But that probably also prevents them from moving to San Francisco to get that coding job, even if they could do it. Yeah. I tell people this all the time, that one of the big solutions for how you give people opportunity who live in a geography where a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunity have disappeared for whatever reason is why don't they just move, right? Why don't they move to the places of the country that have more jobs that have more opportunity? The two responses I have to that are always one part of the issue with just moving to San Francisco, if you don't already have a job there, is San Francisco is a really expensive place to live. Um, the same is true of a lot of big cities across the country, even places like Columbus, which by the standards of big cities is low cost of living, but by the standards of Middletown, Ohio, is a very expensive place to, to raise a family. You know, we've created this weird dynamic where a lot of the places, a lot of the geographies where you have the most opportunity are also the places where it's really expensive to build a life. And so, you know, you want to tell a person, you know, a middle class father of two or a working class father of two that he needs to move away from everything that he has, all of his family, all of his social support and move to a place where a two bedroom apartment costs $4,000 a month. And by the way, not even totally clear what job you're going to do when you get there. That's just a really tough equation. It's not surprising that a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, given a choice between that very high risk outcome and maybe lower opportunity, but certainly stability here at home, I'm going to stay here at home. And then the second thing is, is you're absolutely right. There is a cultural component to this. And you know, a cultural component that I, I agree has some downsides, I tend to think has a lot of upsides too, where you know, people don't want to build a life thousands of miles away from the people that made them who they are. I think. You know, one of the more interesting statistics that I saw from the 2016 election was if you live within 20 miles of your mother, who are you likely to vote for, right? And the people who live within 20 miles of their family were much more likely to vote for Trump and people who were much more mobile were, were much likelier to vote for Hillary Clinton. And my assumption is that basic pattern held during the 2020 election as well. I think that it's understandable that people don't want to leave everything behind. And, you know, my own story is I left home when I was 18 years old. I went to the Marine Corps. I went to Ohio State. I went to Yale from there. I pretty much for 10 years was constantly away from home. And that was a necessary part of me ultimately having the opportunities that I have today. But the pool of home is pretty strong. And I eventually found my way back to Cincinnati where you know I'm about 25 miles from, from my family sitting here right now. I don't think that life decision is something that we can just frown upon and judge and say, well, if you don't have opportunities, you're going to have to move. I think a lot of people want to build a life in the home that they came from. And we should make that easier too. If people want to move, fine, they can move. But for people who don't want to move, we, we can't just write them off. Tell us about the movie. What's been your involvement? I hear they filmed some of this in Middletown. Yeah, that's right. 
They film most of it in Georgia, which I understand is sort of a tax policy thing. It's just much cheaper to, to film a movie in Georgia than it is in most other places. They did, and I appreciated this, they filmed for about a week in Middletown, I think, for a lot of environmental scenes so that it was just as close to the real thing as they could possibly get. And it was kind of crazy, actually, because you know, with the help of the, the Middletown government, and the Middletown police force, they sort of shut down this four block section of Middletown where they filmed most of the scenes that took place in Middletown. And that was on Harrison Street in Middletown. If people know where that is, it was literally a block over from McKinley Street, which is where I actually grew up in town. And so it was one of these things where I was like parking my car three blocks in one direction from where I grew up and walking, you know, one block the other direction. And, and there was this movie set. It was just a pretty crazy, pretty surreal experience. You know, my involvement is, you know, I, I tried to be, and I didn't want to make a movie about the book at first. And then I talked to Ron Howard and I just really liked him and really liked the thoughtfulness that he brought to the project. And so, you know, eventually relented and, and agreed to let him make a, a movie out of the book. And I sort of saw my involvement as uh, to try to be as much of an advisor as possible about the characters, about the lines that they would use. You know, if there was a line of dialogue where I thought, you know, that kind of of sounds awkward. I've never heard that phrase before. You know, or, you know, they were really interested in sort of what would Mamaw say in this particular moment? That's my grandmother. What would Papaw, my grandfather, say in this particular moment? And so try to just give as much of a help and a boost to them as possible as they tried to make the movie. But I also tried not to interfere, you know, too much. I sort of took the attitude of these guys know how to make movies. Ron Howard knows how to make movies and and I don't. And so I, I tried to let him do as much as possible. The weirdest part about it is when they just as they have to do to turn a book into a two-hour movie, they take some dramatic license, they fuse different stories together into the same moment uh, so that they can accomplish some movement of the plot. It's very weird to sort of see something that happened when you were 16 and something that happened when you were 29 actually happen in the same scene. just causes this weird cognitive dissonance, but it was definitely really fun to watch it all come together and I hope folks will watch it, which it'll be out here in, in a week and a half or so. Absolutely. Outside books, movies, you're spending a lot of time on investing, especially in private equity. How did you get interested or involved in private equity? Sort of just pure chance. I mentioned Peter Thiel earlier. and he, you know, I first met him in 2011, I think. I was a law school student. He gave a talk at the law school. And I remember this was right before the movie The Social Network came out. And Peter figures sort of very prominently in that movie because he's one of the earliest, I guess, the earliest investor in Facebook. And you know, he came and gave this talk and it was a relatively small seminar room. He wasn't especially well-known guy. He was just really obsessed in this talk with why had the real economy stagnated? You know, we, we'd seen all this progress in social media and information technology, but it took longer to fly from New York to Paris in 2011 than it did in 1985. Our energy system wasn't that much more efficient. Our agriculture system in terms of yields per acre was pretty stagnant. There were just all of these ways in which the real economy had sort of stagnated. He saw that fundamentally as sort of a capital allocation problem. He thought venture capitalists just weren't willing to invest in harder technologies and things that were a little bit more challenging. They were too interested in the low-hanging fruit of software and IT. I was just really impressed by that message. And it's something that I'd never heard before. And it, it really influenced, I think, a lot about how I think about the world today. I just you know, went up and told him like, hey, I think that's, that's really interesting. Is there any way that I could help do the things that you're doing? And he eventually said, yeah, you should come out and work for me. We sort of had a conversation that led to a job offer. 
that's pretty much how I got here. And there's been no looking back. And it's funny when I, when I think about that conversation, you know, pretty much my entire career, you know, since I, I had a brief stint in a, in a corporate law firm has been in venture capital. And I think, but for Peter's mentorship probably would have never happened. You know, I probably would have been doing something else. So it, it really is just amazing sometimes how those chance occurrences influence how you think about your own life and, and eventually your own career. So in the movie, you mentioned Ron Howard. You also have Glenn Close. You have Amy Adams. And those are super impressive. But being an investment guy, I might be more impressed with Peter Thiel and Steve Case. So you go from uh, Peter Thiel and then you work with Steve Case as well. And he influences your thoughts about investing in venture capital. The first time I met Steve was actually, I was very, very clear memory. I was in DC staying at this fancy hotel because I'd been on Face the Nation, I think, that morning. And I met Steve for a drink at this hotel. Steve sort of fused my interest in, call it tech innovation and hard tech sectors with his interest in geographic innovation. And, you know, one of the things Steve persuaded me of was that part of the reason you weren't seeing as much, call it hard tech innovation, for lack of a better word, is that all the venture capital dollars were going to software capitals in the country, right? If all of the money was going to San Francisco, and I think when we first sat down, probably over 90% of venture capital dollars were going to San Francisco, then it's not surprising that the types of companies that exist in Silicon Valley are the types of companies that are really taking off. And so his argument to me was, if you're really interested in investing in these non-traditional sectors as a venture capitalist, you've got to get out of Silicon Valley and you've got to focus on some of the things that we're focused on. I think that conversation led me uh, eventually to one, work with Steve and then eventually launch my own fund here in Cincinnati, which is you know what, what I spend most of my time working on today. But I think Steve's real innovation in venture capital has been in this geographic focus, which when he started four years ago, not really many people were talking about it. And now, you know, you've got multiple big Silicon Valley funds. You know, my friend Joe Lonsdale, who runs this firm, 8VC, a big, big Silicon Valley investment fund, just announced a couple of days ago that he was moving the fund to Austin, Texas. You know, Peter Thiel himself has a fund, Mithril Capital in Austin, Texas. You started to see people moving outside of the valley. And I really think that's a trend where maybe not all the credit, but certainly a lot of the credit belongs to Steve. So are entrepreneurs different on the coasts versus in middle America? Oh, they certainly are in ways, frankly, both good and bad, or at least there are things about Silicon Valley that I don't like. I think entrepreneurs very often, because they live in a world that's so flush with venture capital, they think a lot more about how to raise the next round uh, sometimes than how to actually build a viable business with customers and a consistent revenue base. The flip side of it, they can also become, I think, a little arrogant because of that. They know that if this thing doesn't work out, there's going to be another job or another entrepreneurial venture for them to take advantage of six months down the road. And so I think that creates a certain sense of almost entitlement where the entrepreneurial ecosystem just seems so vibrant that people take it for granted. You know, the flip side of, of Silicon Valley, think about sort of a prototype of an entrepreneur in the Midwest or in the Southeast is... You know, they don't take venture capital for granted. So I think they're a lot more dedicated and focused from a very early age on how to build the real business, not just how to keep raising money. And that's, I think, a very good thing. But they're not quite, or I should say they're more risk averse than a lot of the entrepreneurs that I talk to in Silicon Valley. And I think, again, some of that comes from you know, working in ecosystems where if you start a startup in San Francisco and it goes bust, there are like 100 other things that you can do after that. Right? There are companies you can go work for. There are other companies you can go and start. 
you know, if you've got a startup in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it goes bust, you know, there may be five or six other things you can do, but there aren't dozens. And I think that makes people a little bit less willing to take on risk, a little bit more willing to sell early. And one of the things we've tried to train the folks that we've worked with is if you've got a really big idea, don't take the $90 million acquisition offer. Wait it out, actually. Try to build something truly world-changing, which again, sometimes that blows up in your face and you pass on an acquisition offer that was very valuable. But I think the flip side of it is that the types of companies that we invest in will more often than not tend to have much, much bigger outcomes than the $90 million actually that you might expect in a classic Midwestern city. So we try as much as we can to convince entrepreneurs to think big and to be willing to take on a little bit more risk. I have to tell a story on this topic because you know, one of my favorite people in the world, both as a human being and also just as a professional, is this guy, Scott Dorsey, who runs High Alpha Ventures in Indianapolis. Scott told me that I want to say in the sort of mid-2000s, uh, he was approached by Salesforce to buy Exact Target for something on the order of $70 million. And Scott wanted to take the deal. The deal fell through because something came up in Salesforce's diligence. And so it didn't eventually happen. Scott sold Exact Target to Salesforce six or seven years later for $2.6 billion. And so that deal falling through, which he was pretty unhappy about at the time, eventually resulted in him building you know, one of the biggest companies in the Midwest. And that to me is the big difference is I think if Scott had grown up in San Francisco and spent his career in San Francisco, there's no way he would have taken 70 uh, for that company uh, when, when it was offered. We have an office in Indianapolis, and I remember seeing the signage change on that building, and it went up as Salesforce. And he's certainly a great example. In Cincinnati, I can only think of one company in recent history that's attracted any major venture capital. And then I also think about your story about Peter Thiel. If I remember the movie correctly, I think it was Peter, speaking of social network, who talks to Mark and says, Mark, this Facebook thing, uh, you need to move to San Francisco because of the ecosystem. And so not only do you have more money out there, but there's this whole ecosystem around there. How do you build an ecosystem in Grand Rapids or Wichita or Cleveland, Ohio? I think that's the sort of thing that really has to start in sort of the nonprofit and the public sector. It's hard to be the first private sector venture capitalist in a place. You know, we're doing what we're doing in Cincinnati because we, we love it and because it's our home. But you know, if a lot of work hadn't gone into Cincinnati from the brandery, from similar institutions, I think it would have been very hard for us to do you know, what we're doing. You know, I can't imagine starting Naria in Cincinnati in 2010 but in 2020, it was actually, it seemed really possible. There was a lot happening culturally downtown. There was an existing entrepreneurial ecosystem. There were already good companies that were being started at seed and, and series A stages. I think that what we've seen that's sort of been most effective is when community leaders recognize that there's some real benefit to creating entrepreneurial ecosystems. And they try to create the infrastructure to make that happen, right? It's co-working spaces. It's places where people are actually meeting with investors and community leaders. Where the private sector can be most helpful is not even investing in venture capital funds. Obviously, you know, as a, as a venture capital investor, that's, that's good and we want people to continue to do that. What Cincinnati, for example, has done really well is make it easier for the companies who are trying to buy and sell in the startup space to access uh, those legacy companies, both as customers, as mentors, as potential suppliers. Because that business relationship, I think, is just incredibly valuable. 
I will say that, you know, the ecosystems that I don't, I shouldn't say I don't love them as much, but you just, just one dynamic that I've seen that I, I don't appreciate is when people try to recreate Silicon Valley in their own cities. I, I always think that's a little bit of a fool's errand. You know, Silicon Valley has a lot of disadvantages, but it has a lot of innate advantages. I don't think anybody's going to recreate it. I think, you know, for example, Columbus right now is spending a lot of time trying to create a life sciences and gene therapy ecosystem for startups. And I think that's going to be very successful. They've got Nationwide Children's Hospital. They've got a lot of institutions that are making it easier to do that. You know, Cincinnati has its own unique advantages. And I think what each ecosystem or what each city should do when it's building an ecosystem is identify the things that the legacy business infrastructure there is already good at and try to build a startup ecosystem on top of that as opposed to just sort of copying the sort of consumer IT focus of Silicon Valley. That makes a lot of sense, playing to your strengths. You have this firm in Cincinnati, Ohio. How does sourcing work? If you're in uh, Sand Hill Road, they probably knock on your door. Do you have to do a lot more of knocking on their door? How do you source great ideas? I think if you ask you know, 10 different venture capitalists, you get 10 different answers. And obviously, this is complicated a lot in, in a COVID world where people aren't traveling as much and a lot of people are working remotely, at least part of the time. What we try to do is, one, we try to use the existing network of investors that we've worked with for five years at this point and really try to sort of rely on the people that we trust. You know, I mentioned Scott Dorsey earlier, but there are a lot of good investors that we've talked to that we've invested with over the years. And if they have a good company, a lot of times we're going to be one of the first people that they knock on on our door because they've worked with us in the past and we haven't been overbearing and we've been a good partner to work with. But of course, part of being a good partner is not saying yes all the time, just being honest and forthright when you do say no. It's amazing how much people appreciate honest feedback as opposed to, well, you know, we're not going to do this. It's too early. That's not really helpful. But I think if you're actually helpful, then people come to you with more and more companies, even if you've said no in the past. The other thing that we try to do at Naria, and I think is pretty specific to our model, is that we really try to identify macro trends and different industry verticals that we're excited about, either because new technologies are coming online or because you know, we think an industry is just pretty ripe for innovation, or just because we've talked to an interesting person who is working on something that suggests the industry is sort of overdue for some change. And we really try to mine those contacts and those sources of information for interesting companies that might come out of it. You know, sometimes you find that there's something interesting going on in an industry technologically, but it's not yet ready for commercialization. And so you keep tabs on it, and a few years later, it is ready for commercialization. And sometimes you find there's a company that should exist, or you think that it should exist, and it doesn't. And so you, know, you sort of have to put that one back on the drawing board and hope somebody comes up with something similar. And then sometimes you find that you think an industry opportunity, there's a perfect meeting between that and a company that should exist. And you just do everything you can to put as much money into that company as you can. So, you know, we're pretty macro driven investors. We really try to identify where a given economic trend matches up with a new technology and invest in that company. I think, you know, App Harvest, which is a company in the Naria portfolio, I think is a pretty perfect elucidation of that thesis. You know, there's a company that we've invested in back when I worked more directly with Steve Case called Anderil, which is a defense technology company uh, that's doing very well right now. A, a lot of it is just, you know, I, I think you have to have a pretty discreet view of what the future should look like and which companies are actually trying to make that future happen. And that's what we try to do. We are recording this during COVID-19. How has COVID either impacted some of those themes, timing of investment, or getting kind of back to our start of our conversation, middle America? What's the broader impact of, of COVID? I do think that 
the social impact, I think, is, is pretty powerful. And obviously, it's fallen on different groups of people differently. When I think about COVID, obviously, the pandemic is the physical pandemic that's hurting and, and, and killing a lot of people is, is sort of top of mind. You know, below that, the next thing I worry about is, is sort of the social impact for a lot of middle class and working class families. We're not worrying, you know, we only have two young kids and they're, neither of them are really school age. You know, one of them is in preschool with his grandfather a couple days a week. But I worry a lot about the 11-year-old kid who is sitting at home in front of a computer all day and can't actually get to school. And obviously, that's only true for you know a segment of the population. There are a lot of, I think, families of means who are finding ways to get their kids socialization, to get them in front of other kids, to get them really at a school that's safe and is actually teaching them things, but also you know giving them that important socialization. I worry a lot that we're failing middle-class and working-class kids on this front, that you have a lot of those kids who have no real social outlet, who aren't getting a real education because it's impossible to really teach an 11-year-old kid in front of a computer screen. And so I worry a ton about that. Obviously, COVID, if you look at the economic indices, I mean, just it's affected the non-tech sector more than it's affected the technology sector, right? There's a reason that the NASDAQ was going gangbusters until a few weeks ago. And then as soon as the vaccine news started to tick up, the NASDAQ started to lag behind the Dow and the S&P. And that's, of course, because the tech sector has just done really well. If you're in the business of delivering packages or you're in the business of connecting people via computers, your business has been doing really well during COVID. You know, if you're in the business of selling food, it hasn't been as good to state the obvious. And so, you know, what's true in a lot of these, you know, small and medium-sized towns all across middle America, is it true even in a bigger city like Cincinnati, where you have a neighborhood like Over the Rhine, which I think is a real attraction of Cincinnati, but it's struggling right now, obviously, because a lot of it's built on service sector jobs and service sector businesses where the revenues just aren't there in a time of, of a global pandemic. I guess those are the two things I worry about besides the pandemic itself. Like, are we failing our kids? and not affording them proper educational opportunities in the midst of the pandemic? And are we taking four or five step backwards in a lot of these medium-sized towns where they've really built up a service sector-based economy, and that's sort of going backwards right now? And then take it to the next step. How does that impact investing, especially on the venture side? And the only real way that COVID has affected us beyond the fact that we're spending more time on Zoom calls and we're not traveling as much is that we're just being cautious in how we deploy capital. You know, if you'd asked me, I would have said year one of our fund, we wanted to deploy 20% of our capital committed and we're probably going to be more like 15%. And so we're probably just saying no to things that we might have said yes to uh, two or three years ago because we're not sure how this is ultimately going to shake out. You know, we're, we've never shied away from life sciences. We have a life science investment in our portfolio right now. Uh, we continue to look probably more deeply at life sciences than we would have two or three years ago, just because I think, you know, for obvious reasons, the regulatory regime has loosened up a little bit in the midst of COVID. And there's a lot of capital, government capital, nonprofit capital, um, and a lot of private capital that's going in to a lot of new diseases. Now, the interesting flip side on the life sciences piece is that because of COVID, it's actually been harder to get a clinical trial through in a non-COVID application. And so I do think there's going to be this interesting dynamic where a lot of companies that are clinical trial ready have sort of been just sitting on the shelf, languishing a little bit. And you're going to see a sort of buying spree for those assets when COVID starts to recede to the back of people's memory. 
But certainly, you know, the final thing that we ponder is, you know, we want to invest obviously not just in people and companies that are interesting, but also in vibrant communities. If a company is trying to build itself in a place that's just falling apart, it's just less likely to be successful. And so we certainly asked ourselves when looking at businesses, is this business going to fare well if the pandemic lasts for another six or 12 or 18 months? But that tends to be pretty case by case. And again, I think so far, at least, other than just generally being cautious, I don't think that we've said no to anything or said yes to anything purely because of COVID. Has COVID made it even more important for companies, even if they're making widgets, to have a digital transformation plan? How important is that? Or it's like, you know what, this is just kind of, this is the here and now. This is, we're all doing Zoom calls or doing Microsoft Teams. Do you really have to be like, hey, I know you're in a service business or you're in a manufacturing business, do you have to have a digital presence? I think you do. I wouldn't necessarily say code has changed that as much as just accelerated that, right? So we've already seen, you know, Mark Andreessen has this famous quote, software is eating the world. And I think what he really means by that is that there's going to be some part of your business process, even if you're making widgets, that's going to be improved by having a more digital supply chain, you know, a more effective way to switch out one supplier from another, a better way of actually delivering to customers, even in the midst of a pandemic. So I tend to think that one of the things that COVID has revealed is that if you don't have at least some sort of digital footprint, if you're not using technology, not necessarily as the core part of your business, but to enable some more efficient business processes, then you're probably just not going to survive in this world. And I unfortunately think that, you know, the even in restaurants, right? When you think about a business that's not digital at all, except for maybe reservations and payments, is a restaurant. But as I understand it, the businesses that have fared the best in the COVID world are those that have gotten ahead of the convenience delivery options, right? If you were more thoughtful about orienting your business in a way where Grubhub or DoorDash could make deliveries where customers could do curbside pickup uh, without having any sort of contact fared a lot better than the businesses that I think that have effectively tied themselves to the old model of doing business. And, you know, I hope the worry would be that even the service businesses that have gone a little bit more digital and adjusted are still not doing well, that the sort of the barriers are just too substantial in a COVID world. But I hope and suspect that's not the case. I think that while you're going to see a lot of folks going out of business, and I think that's you know, really unfortunate, I do think that you're going to see a lot of companies figuring out how to thrive even in this new world. And then of course, the question is, does it ever really go back? You know, If we do have a Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that has 96% efficacy, do companies regret making those investments or not? I suspect the answer is no. But it's, it's of course, a, a big question that a lot of folks have asked is, if this goes on for 12 months versus 24 months, it changes the capital expenditure calculus. So lastly, I hear your name thrown around occasionally in political circles. Can we ever expect to hear of a senator or governor, Vance? I don't think so. You know, at least not anytime soon. I, I really like what I'm doing. And I think we're doing a lot of good. And, you know, I, I like just sort of being a member of the community here in Cincinnati. I like focusing on helping these companies grow. 
And all that stuff is just impossible if you go into the political world. And not that there aren't good people or honest reasons to do politics. But for now, I think what we're doing is, I think, hopefully making a difference. And in my most ambitious vision of Naria, what we would do is show that if you invest in different types of technologies than Silicon Valley investors are focused on, you can actually do very well for your investors, but also create a lot of value. And I'm not ready to give up on that mission anytime soon. Well, J.D., thank you so much. I know you've been extremely busy. Your movie comes out on the 24th. Please make sure everybody goes and watches it. I know I won't miss it. I will be tuned in. So thank you very much, J.D. Awesome. Thank you. Great to talk with you. If you are interested in more information on the topic, please go to our website where we will have a list of relevant FEG publications. And don't forget to subscribe to our communications at www.feg.com backslash subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Please keep in mind that this information is intended to be general education that needs to be framed within the unique risk and return objectives of each client. Therefore, nobody should consider these FEG recommendations. This podcast was prepared by FEG. Neither the information nor any opinion expressed in this podcast constitutes an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy or sell any securities. The views or opinions expressed by guest speakers are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FEG.